Judges chapter 9. We're making our way chapter by chapter through the book of Judges, that very dark history, uh, 400 years in between the settling of the land and the monarchy there in Israel. Judges chapter 9. As you settle in, I'll ask the Lord for his blessing. Now, Heavenly Father, as we consider this very long and sad chapter, uh, Judges chapter 9, and as we shut off all of our cellular devices, we pray that, Father, you would uh, open the eyes of our understanding like we always pray. Holy Spirit, come, and you're in this place. You've gathered us together for a reason. You've got something to say. We don't want to play church. We want to hear from the Spirit of the living God, something that will help us, something we need to hear. Even if we don't want to hear it or don't like to hear it, we, we will be blessed to respond to your word of life. And so we just pray toward that end tonight. Speak to our hearts. When we hear you, we will put it into practice and obey. In Jesus' name, amen. I've entitled tonight's study of Judges 9, My Kingdom Come. It's a tragic story of someone who replaces God from the throne and places himself as the reigning king. It's a sad and horrifying uh, chapter. It's a sequel to the Gideon story. Gideon, of course, chapter 6, chapter 7, and chapter 8. Now in chapter 9, we are going to take up with Gideon's legacy, his son Abimelech. Um, now, while Gideon, for the most part, uh, does well, he lets the Lord use his weakness and his fickle faith, as we saw for three chapters. He's also commended in the book of Hebrews chapter 11. So for the most part, uh, he's a hero. But Gideon finishes poorly and leaves a rather lethal legacy through a series of spiritual missteps that his son is going to unfortunately fall into. Um, though he verbally, Gideon, that is, declines the people's offer to make him a king and set up a dynasty. Uh, he, he declines verbally, but as we talked about last week, he, he really begins to act like one. He deals treacherously and um, in a tyrannical way with anybody who gets in, in his way. Uh, he amasses wealth. Uh, of the plunder. Uh, he takes multiple wives and concubines. Uh, just as Deuteronomy 17, the Lord said, if you have future kings, uh, make sure that they don't take plunder, amass wealth, and take multiple wives, and the very things that he is doing. And so uh, the worst part of it is he fashions a golden, not calf, but it might as well have been, it's an idol called an ephod, which we talked about, a garment that only the high priest could use to determine the Lord's will. And so he said, hey, you guys can always come to me in my backyard because we've got this golden ephod. It's like an eternal permanent golden fleece. We'll always know the will of the Lord. And then, unfortunately, in chapter 8, verse 27, it says, All Israel prostituted themselves by worshiping it there, and it became a snare, a trap to Gideon and to Gideon's family. So chapter 9 now is going to tell us how that snare uh, actually took place and in the family left behind, that is Abimelech and all those 70 sons. It's the longest and saddest chapter in the book of Judges. It's very, very sad and dark and depressing, but there's a lot of good insight for us. The reflection, of course, is that anybody who wants to live a lawless life Anybody who throws God off the throne and puts themselves on the throne is really an Abimelech in the making and will reap what Abimelech reaps. And so we're listening with ears uh, toward our own hearts and our own struggle with um, being lawless and putting the king of self on 
the throne of our hearts. Let me set you up for the opening paragraph. It's a long chapter. We're going to just uh, do our best with it. Um, Gideon had a harem, and he had uh, Jewish wives. Through those Jewish wives, he had 70 sons. He also had concubine. Concubine is a polite word for prostitute. And that prostitute was a Shechemite, all right, which is like a Canaanite. And through that woman, he had one son, and he named him Abimelech. My father is king. Abba, father, Malek, king. My father is king. So now, with knowing that, chapter 9 is the rise and fall of this pathetic, power-hungry monster named Abimelech. Verse 1. Abimelech, son of Jerubbaal, that's Gideon's uh, new name. So from now on in the text, I will call him by his old name. It's much more familiar and easier to pronounce, Gideon. Abimelech, son of Gideon, this son went to his mother's brothers, that is his brothers on his mother's side, the prostitute side, not the Israelite wives. Got it? goes to his half-brothers in Shechem and said to them and to all his mother's clan, ask all the citizens, which is better for you, to have all 70 of Gideon's sons rule over you or just one man? Remember, (laughs) I am your flesh and blood. When the brothers repeated all this to the citizens of Shechem, they were inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, he is our brother. They gave him 70 shekels of silver from the temple of Baal Barith, which means the covenant with Baal. And Abimelech used it to hire reckless adventurers who became his followers. He went to his father's home in Ophrah and on one stone murdered his 70 brothers, the sons of Gideon. He is a son of Gideon as well you realize, but through a different mother. So he kills uh, 70 of his half-brothers there on one stone. He murders them. But Jotham, the youngest son, escaped by hiding. Then all the citizens of Shechem and Beth Milo gathered beside the great tree at the pillar in Shechem to crown Abimelech king. Roman numeral number one, King Me. All right, after Gideon dies, who was kind of king and kind of not, um, Abimelech wants to become what his father play-acted. And perhaps that's kind of source of the hate for Gideon, his own father, is, is that he wants what Gideon always kind of refused officially, but kind of played with, uh, practically speaking. So maybe he's saying... I've got the name. So my father, this great hero who has rescued uh, Israel from the hand of the Midianites, he named me. Uh, uh, I've got the, the desire. I'm coveting for power and wealth and recognition. And I've got the motive. Was it because, you know, my mother was the Canaanite. She's a Shechemite. And I'm not one of the 70 sons. I'm kind of marginalized over here. I'm a half-breed. I'm not a real Jew. I've got a Canaanite concubine mother. And who knows what sibling rivalry was going on that helped create this guy. And so it's time to soar. Helen Keller said, one never can be content to crawl when one feels the impulse to soar. Um, Soaring is okay if it's the wind of the Holy Spirit beneath your wings and it's a God-appointed ambition. And if your ambition is grounded in the word of God and for the glory of God, I think it's good to be ambitious. But when it's selfish ambition, watch out. Remember what Brother James said in chapter 3 and verse 16. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder and every evil practice. So the Pandora's box of all things unholy and evil is selfish ambition. 
And what does that mean? It means self-centeredness. When I'm thinking about me, myself, and I. He says, that is the box. You open that, you'll find every level of hell and death and curse in that box. Of course, we don't always see it that way, uh, but that's what the Bible says, and we're going to (laughs) see that that's lived out in the life of this king me, uh, Abimelech. So once it's all about you, just know this, all hell is going to break loose sooner or later. Abimelech wants a throne. What's standing in the way? Verses 1 and 2. First, he needs allegiance. So he goes and creates strife with his brothers on his mother's side. He says, I'm the son of Gideon with the Canaanite blood. Now, do you guys who are Canaanites, Shechemites, I'm a Shechemite, look at my mother, and I'm a son of Gideon with the name. Would you want me, who's related to you, to rule over you, one guy, or who knows what's going on with the 70 sons over there in Israel? Do you want, you want 70 guys to rule over you? We don't even know what they're up to. Or do you want me? Who's going to have your best interest at heart? I am, after all, a Shechemite through my mother. And they said, yeah. We're inclined to let you do this. That, you know, not what's right or what's wrong, but what's in this for us. And so our best interest in that we have somebody who, like us, in uh, the White House there or whatever, taking care of us, and then we're going to be okay. Now, this um, verse 3 spreads all over, so he's got the allegiance. Uh, You know what? By the way, it doesn't even say even once that any of those 70 boys wanted to be king. He's putting it all in their head because he wants to. So he's saying, you know, what if they start to rule and reign? Wouldn't it be better if it was me? So check, he's got allegiance, he's got strife, he's created a problem. Now he needs to be financed there in uh, verse 4, donations for his campaign. So he takes about 200 bucks in today's dollars from the pagan temple And now he's got funds and a donor base, and he's got allegiance with his mother's brothers. And with with the tainted campaign funds, he hires what the the Hebrew says, empty-headed thugs, adventurers, daredevils, you know, so, hey, we're in this, let's just do this thing, you know, and this kind of no... uh, no brain kind of person. And uh, I love what one commentator says, a work begun under the name and influence of the devil and his lying murderous ways is not likely to end to the glory of God or to the welfare of man. They take the, the temple to Baal. It's money. They go into the treasury and they take out money there and said, hey, we're going to finance this campaign. Little did they know what he was going to do with it, but they don't seem to care either. Where is anybody standing up and saying, what, you're going to kill all your half-brothers? Are you kidding me? And you're going to use the money we just gave you from the temple to Baal? Where's, the, where's anybody saying, what are you thinking? What are you doing? Because they're backslidden. The Jews are backslidden. The Canaanites don't care anyway. And so they round up 70 guys one by one on the same slab of rock and put them all to death. Out of my way, my kingdom comes. Uh, When men and women crown themselves king, many are their victims slain on the one rock slab. Who ends up on that rock slab when a husband becomes king? with no fear of the Lord. You know who ends up on that slab? His wife. Execute her. Execute the kids. I'm king. I'll do as I please. And he, in essence, you know, maybe he doesn't uh, really put a hit on them, but he might as well have because he's destroyed the marriage, he's destroyed, uh, and, and it goes for the wife as well. How about a church or the ministry? You know, when, when I become king and I'm doing things without God and disconnected, we put our careers on there, our ministries, our dreams, and people that love us and we supposedly used to love. And so there he 
there you have it, a terrible bloody mess. So the usurper of God's role, now the anti-judge, he's the anti-king, he's the false king. In verse 6, he's crowned, he's the first king ever crowned in Israel. It's illegal. Uh, God said, you got me as king. Why, you, why, why do you want to do this? I'm your king. Don't be like the other nations. I will lead you. I will rule you. But they wanted uh, kings, and it never really goes well for them in that regard. And so ironically, where Joshua solemnly placed the scroll of the, the word of the Lord by a great tree, the pillar there in Shechem, that's in Joshua 24, uh, that's where they crown him king and do all of that nasty stuff with the scroll from Joshua's days right there. And that just goes to show you all evil is done in the sight of the Lord and against his word and is destined for eternal judgment. Okay, let's go on here. So one of the 70 sons, Jotham, the youngest, has escaped this fratricide. And now God uh, will pronounce a curse through this youngest boy in the hearing of them all. Verse 7. When Jotham was told about this, that that this uh, guy Abimelech is crowned, he climbs up on top of Mount Gerizim and shouted to them, listen to me, I've got something to say. He's going to tell them a parable now. Citizens of Shechem, so that God may listen to you. Here's the story. One day the trees went out to anoint a king for themselves. They said to the olive tree, be our king. But the olive tree answered, Should I give up my oil by which both gods and men are honored to hold sway over the trees? Next the tree said to the fig tree, Come and be our king. But the fig tree replied, Should I give up my fruit, so good and so sweet, to hold sway, to reign over the trees? Then the tree said to the vine, Come and be our king. But the vine answered, should I give up my wine, which cheers both gods and men, to hold sway over the trees? Finally, all the trees said to the thorn bush, Come and be our king. The thorn bush said to the trees, If you really want to anoint me king over you, come and take refuge in my shade. But if not, let, that, let fire come out of the thorn bush and consume the cedars of Lebanon. So Roman numeral number two, a parable with a punch. The Lord liked to talk, especially to his enemies, in parables. So the word means to come alongside with a story, to make something, a spiritual truth, more understandable in a practical manner. You know, uh, and he loved to tell them in front of these wicked people. You remember, he'd say something like, uh, the kingdom of God is like a field of wheat and poisonous weeds. And while he's looking at the bad guys, He's saying, well, the wheat gets harvested and stored safely in the barn, but the poisonous plants get ripped out, piled up, and burned with fire. Recognize anybody in the story? <laughs> I mean, he went on and on and on. He said, hey, hey guys, listen up. I'll tell you a little story, guys. And the, they're all seething in front of him. And he says, you know, the kingdom of God is like, it's like a guy who went fishing. And all the good fish, he takes out of the net, and he keeps them. They're good fish. But all the bad, and disgusting, and slimy, and poisonous eels and things from the sea, what does he do? He throws them out. He trashes them. Recognize what I'm trying to say? And so here, the Lord is giving um, uh, Jotham a parable. And he's saying, really, in essence, here's a fairy tale. See if you can find yourself in this. So Jotham climbs 800 feet to Mount Gerizim. You'll remember Mount Gerizim and the Valley of Shechem in between and Mount Ebal on the other side. And back in Deuteronomy, uh, I believe it was chapter 28, where they would call the curses back and forth. That's where they are. Splendid acoustics, and so he's going to tell them this little blessing here, or it turns out to be a curse. The trees are the Shechemites, all right? And the Shechemites are not going to have a benevolent king like an olive tree. Uh, you made food from the olives, or, 
ointment and medicine, so it was valuable crop, or a fig tree, a sweet fruit and a picture of the promised land and Israel flourishing, or a grapevine, which made fine wines. No, nothing good, nothing beneficial, zero value for your choice. You are going to get a thorn bush. And what they used thorn bushes for was to start fires. And he says, uh, this guy is going to say, look, I'll be your king and you could come under my shade. How ridiculous is it to come under tall trees coming under the shade of a weed bramble bush of thorns? It's not going to happen. And so he says, you have picked uh, foolishly and out of this a weed, uh, out of control, menace to agriculture is and used to start fires. This is what you're going to get. And so it was it used to be said that the people would live under the shade of a king. And so this is the idea here of the parable. It doesn't really uh, make sense to our ears, but it's something that they uh, heard over and over again, verse 15, Abimelech therefore will be like a briar patch that will cause a lot of pain and fire. The point is clear, but Jotham explains in 16 to 20. Now, if you have acted honorably and in good faith when you made Abimelech king, and if you have been fair to Gideon and his family, and if you have treated him as he deserves, and to think that my father fought for you, risked his life to rescue you from the hand of Midian, but today you have revolted against my father's family, murdered his 70 sons on a single stone, and made Abimelech, the son of the slave girl, king over the citizens of Shechem because he's your brother, if, that was a long by the way, verse 19, if then you have acted honorably and in good faith toward Gideon and his family today, may Abimelech be your joy, and may you be his too. But if you have not, let fire come out of Abimelech and consume you. Citizens of Shechem and Beth Milo, and let fire come out from you, citizens of Shechem and Beth Milo, and consume Abimelech. So uh, Roman numeral number three, a match made in hell. This is what he's saying here. He's saying... Honorable actions, sorry, honorable actions bring blessing. And he says, but your dishonorable choices and actions will destroy both you and your king. And the thing you love and the thing you want to reign over you will one day destroy you. And you, that king, you will both perish in a big ball of dark Flame and fire. And that's what he's saying. He's saying parties in this crime will mutually destroy each other. You guys deserve one another. You're a perfect match. Uh, you, you will turn on him and he will turn on you. And that's how it goes. And the devil and those he reigns over will share the same fate. Isn't that amazing to me? Is this that anybody who follows a usurper of God's authority, ends up in the same fate as the devil. So all those under the, the spell of the devil will share in the devil's fate. And so here we've got now the beginning of the end, and God is going to light a little spark now and start the demise of this bad boy. Verses 22 through 29, after Abimelech had governed Israel three years, God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the citizens of Shechem, who acted treacherously against Abimelech. All right, so here we go. Start a little fire uh, from one to the other. God did this in order that the crime against Gideon's 70 sons, the shedding of their blood, might be avenged on their brother Abimelech and on the citizens of Shechem, who had helped him murder his brothers. In opposition to him, these citizens of Shechem sent, set men on the hilltops to ambush and rob everyone who passed by. And this was reported to King Abimelech. Now Gaal, enter somebody who uh, wants to be also king. He's going to oppose Abimelech. Now Gaal, son of Ebed, moved with his brothers into Shechem, and its citizens put their confidence in him. And they're not happy with Abimelech anymore. Now they like this new guy. 
After they had, verse 27, after they had gone out into the fields and gathered the grapes and trodden them, they held a festival in the temple of their God. While they were eating and drinking, they cursed Abimelech. Then Gaal says, who is Abimelech and who is Shechem that we should be subject to him? Isn't he Gideon's son? And isn't Zebul his deputy? Zebul is his right-hand man, Abimelech's. Serve the men of Hamor, Shechem's father, that would be me. Why should we serve Abimelech? If only this people were under my command, then I would get rid of him. I would say to Abimelech, uh, come out your whole army or call them out. So number four, a false peace. So after three years with this self-imposed king, reigning over these godless people, God instigates the first spark. And so uh, after the deed is done, you know, it usually seems like everything's cool, and that's very biblical. After the theft, after the fling, after the affair, after the extortion, after the big lie, it seems right afterwards, maybe it worked. Things really have improved. And it can be a few days, or it could be a few weeks, it could be a few months, it could be a few years. And people get the false idea that everything's uh, okay, and that evil really has the upper hand, and that it's okay. And then, boom, something happens like this. And, and it was three years, all right? So uh, there's a spiritual law that makes benefiting from sin and wrongdoing an impossibility. And here it is. Um, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. Galatians chapter 6, verse 6. For whatever a man sows, that also will he reap. If you sow to the sinful nature, from that nature you will reap destruction. That is um, the world's karma without the person behind it. What, what the world recognizes is God's spiritual principle and calls it karma, but they take the person who is guiding that principle out and just see the principle and say, hey, let's call that karma. What a man sows, that also he shall reap. You know, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 24, Paul says, the sins of some men are obvious, reaching the place of judgment ahead of them. The sins of others trail behind. The point is, there's going to be a boom sooner or later. Sometimes it's a short fuse. You do the deed, and it's a short fuse, and it's an immediate boom. And then it's a long fuse, like 400 years, that God waits for the Canaanites to repent, and they don't. And he says, here it comes. Kapow, 400 years. Or how about this one? 2,000-year fuse. There's been a fuse going since Jesus said, I'm coming back. I go to prepare a place for you. I'll be back to get you. Evangelize the world. Preach the gospel to every creature under heaven. And I'm coming back to judge the living and the dead. Fuse lit. It's been burning for 2,000 years. And in 2 Peter chapter 3, people are, are saying, oh, it's a long fuse. Yeah, but there's an end to that fuse. It doesn't matter if it's 20 minutes, 20 hours, or 2,000 years. There's going to be a boom. And here comes the boom here. So a false peace. Proverbs 26, 27, if a man digs a pit, he will fall into it. If a man rolls a stone, it will roll back on him. I personally like the three-year thing. I don't know if you caught that. Three years of peace under this crazy king. In Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, the Antichrist, the false king, who Abimelech is a type of, he reigns. He makes a, a, tre a peace treaty with Israel for seven years, according to Daniel 9.27. And after three years where it seems like, whoa, we got the man in the office. He's the one world leader. We've got peace in the Middle East. Everything's cool. Peace, peace, safety, safety. Kaboom. 
And how long after? Three years. 1260 days into the Antichrist, right after he makes a deal in the Middle East, 1260, half of the seven years, kapow, boom. That's the way it always goes. So the spirit of ill will goes to work. The, the, the Shechem, Shechem uh, verse 25, Shechem citizens are prompted by a demonic influence to no, not like Abimelech anymore. And so they start raiding people and the traffic, the economy is upset. Verses 26 to 29, there's the new wannabe Antichrist. His name is Gaal. And he says, let's dump this guy. Go with me instead and listen to what reason Gaal gives to dethrone Abimelech. He plays the race card. He says, hey, is this right that this guy Gideon is ruling? Uh, Gideon's son, rather. He says, we belong to the Hivites. That's what in verse 28 where he says, Hamor, their clan is from the Hivites. He says, I'm a Hivite, so go with me. And so all this is happening at a little festival. They're all drinking and praising the gods and goddesses. And that's when they start cursing Abimelech. And word is now going to get back to Zebul, who is the general for Abimelech. And he's going to tell Abimelech, hey, they don't like you anymore. All right, verses 30 to 41. When Zebul, the governor of Shechem, you see, Abimelech doesn't live in Shechem. That, that'll help you make sense of this story. He's got a guy ruling over, but he's outside of Shechem. So Zebul, the guy who is ruling of Shechem, heard what Gaal said, and he was really ticked. Verse 31, undercover, he sent messengers to Abimelech saying, hey, there's a new guy in town, Gaal, and his brothers have come to Shechem, and they're stirring up the city against you, boss. Now then, during the night, you and your men should come and lie in wait in the fields. Verse 33, in the morning at sunrise, advance against the city. When Gaal and his men come out against you, do whatever your hand finds to do. There'll be no problem. Just ra- You'll be fine. Verse 34, so Abimelech and all his troops set out by night and took up concealed positions near Shechem in four companies. Now Gaal had gone out and was standing at the entrance to the city gate just as Abimelech and his soldiers came out from their hiding place. When Gaal saw them, he said to Zabul, Look, people are coming down from the tops of the mountains. And the double agent, Zabul, who had already masterminded uh, Abimelech to come in and save the day, he says, oh, you're mistaken. The shadows of the mountains for men. That's what you're seeing, just shadows. Verse 37. But Gaal spoke up again. Look, people are coming down from the center of the land, and a company is coming from the direction of the soothsayer street. Then Zabul said to him, Uh, Now the jig is up, right? So he says, where is your big talk now, you who said, who is Abimelech, that we should be subject to him? Aren't these the men you ridiculed? Go out and fight them. So Gaal led out uh, the citizens of Shechem and fought Abimelech. Abimelech chased him, and many fell, wounded in the fight, all the way to the entrance to the gate. Abimelech stayed in Arumah, and Zebul drove Gaal and his brothers out of Shechem. So Roman numeral number five. Nice try. All right. So what do we got here? Real quick. General Zebul, Abimelech's man over Shechem, informs Abimelech of what's going on. Verses 30 to 33. Uh, Prince Zebul, let's call him the governor. He's maybe at the party. He hears Gaal slanders slander and uh, gets a word to Abimelech. Hey, there's a dangerous uh, rebellion brewing. So Zebul suggests to Abimelech, you know, if you ambush them quickly, you come in the middle of the night, uh, you can save the day. And so Abimelech takes his advice in verse 34, and his army slip in, and I, I like this part in verses 35 and 36. Um, Gaal is standing there next to the guy, the, the prince, the governor, and he says, hey, hey, what did I, I just, did I see guys coming down from the top of the mountain like soldiers? 
And this guy says, oh, no, are you kidding me? I see that all the time. It's like shadows. It's like trees. It's, it's just a shadow. You, you know, you need to eat something. You're a little lightheaded. You know, he wants him not to be able to defend himself because he's working for Abimelech. And so next time he says, Gaul says, no, wait a second. Those are soldiers. And then he goes like a big junior higher says Zebul, ah, now who's talking smack, you know? Why is your big boy, oh, I was at the drunken party. Oh, let me, vote for me because I'm going to get Abimelech out of office. Go get him. There he is. You see them all? And so I suppose they weren't like best friends after that, you know? And so Zebul takes out his sword and he chases Gaal and his brothers out of town. And half of them die and half of them are just running for home and for cover. Let's finish up the story. All the way to the end now. The next day, the people of Shechem went out to the fields, and this was reported to Abimelech. So Abimelech takes his men, divides them up into three companies, and set an ambush in the fields. When he saw the people coming out of the city, he rose to attack them. Abimelech and the companies with him rushed forward to a position at the entrance of the city gate. Then two companies rushed upon those in the fields and struck them down. All that day, Abimelech pressed his attack against the city until he had captured it and killed its people. Then he destroyed the city and scattered salt over it. I'll explain what he's doing in a bit. 46. On hearing this, the citizens in the tower of Shechem went into the stronghold of the temple of Elbereth. When Abimelech heard that they had assembled there, he and all his men went up to Mount Zalman. He took an axe and cut off some branches, briars, thorns, bramble, hmm, which he lifted to his shoulders. He ordered the men with him, quick, do what you see me do. So all the men cut branches and followed Abimelech. They piled them against the stronghold and set it on fire over the people inside. So all the people in the tower of Shechem, about a thousand men and women, also died. Verse 50. Next, Abimelech went to Thebes and besieged it and captured it. Inside the city, however, was a strong tower to which all the men and women, all the people of the city, fled. They locked themselves in and climbed up on the tower roof. Abimelech went to the tower and stormed it. But as he approached the entrance to the tower to set it on fire, a woman dropped an upper millstone on his head and cracked his skull. I love her. <laughs> I can't wait to meet her. I was going to say, you rock. Get it? It was a rock. <laughs> Verse 54. Hurriedly, he called to his armor bearer, draw your sword and kill me so that they can't say a woman killed him. <laughs> so his servant ran him through, and he died. When the Israelites saw that Abimelech was dead, they went home. You know, the power of one perverted ruler. They all just go home, done, everything's done. Thus God repaid the wickedness that Abimelech had done to his father by murdering his 70 brothers. God also made the men of Shechem pay for all their wickedness. The curse of Jotham, son of Gideon, came on them. Phew. Last point, verse, uh, Roman numeral rather, six, the devil's rage. So apparently, um, verse 42 there, the people of Shechem want to get back to real life um, after Gaal's run out of town. Uh, but Abimelech wants to punish the city, his citizens. 
uh, for aligning themselves with Gaal. He doesn't know who did what, but he wants them all dead, all the people that he uh, is reigning over. And so he, they go out in the field to bring in the rest of the harvest, and he ambushes these helpless people in the middle of the field. God is bringing punishment on them as well because they did nothing about the mass murder anyway. So they're all kind of guilty. And so here's the king and the thorn bush and the fire against these people. Uh, wicked rulers, a nice quote here, wicked rulers and wicked rebels do their wicked deeds fast and furious because they, like their father the devil, know their joy in being king can't last forever. So as they sense they're at the end of their reign, they turn up the flame. Revelation chapter 12, verse 12. But woe to the earth and to the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. And so this guy, just like the devil, realizes, look, I'm not going to be king forever. I might as well just kill everybody while I can. And so he does. And what does he do with the people in the field? He says, fine, you know what? And you come out and you want to harvest it again? I'll show you who you're messing with. I'm going, to, I'm going to put salt all over your fields. And that was a way to make it barren. You could never use it again. His own people. And so he puts the salt over everything. Do you know it takes Shechem 200 years to be rebuilt? 200 years. That's what that king did to it. So the people are going back there. They, they get surrounded and they're getting massacred. The survivors flee to the pagan center. That was a bad move. You know, the righteous run to the name of the Lord. It's a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are safe. Proverbs 18, verse 10. But running to Baal's temple isn't going to be a good move. And so, verses 47, he gets branches, thorn bushes, just like Jotham's prophecy in the fable. And the thorn bushes are on his shoulder, he says. It says there, Shechem means shoulder. And so, you're just getting this, this beautifully ordained, sovereign move of God saying, you thought you got away with it, didn't you? But the word spoken through the one survivor... Boy number, son number 70, who you missed, is coming to pass. And so verses 50 to 53, the evil king's not done, you know. So he wants to go 10 miles north to a different town called Thebes. Apparently there were more dissenters that lived in the town more north. And so these citizens go to the roof of this fortified building, a tower, Abimelech says, hey, we're going to do it again. We're going to burn all of them down. So he says, let's get in close. And we got the thorn bushes. We got the spark. We got everything except heads up. <laughs> and down comes a millstone. They were grinding uh, with grain these 10-inch long uh, rocks that were used, a common household item, the kitchen was where the women would grind the grain. It was her job. She was an expert and strong because she had to do a lot of work. But God, the Holy Spirit, made her like an expert shot putter <laughs> and said, woman, you see that guy down there? Just give it a whirl. And it says in the Hebrew, she hurled the rock. So you see her up there just spinning around and, and, and I'll tell you what, you know, when God wants his man, God gets his man, all right, because there was an arrow shot at a fleeing king, wicked Ahab, and the arrow from, it says, a random archer, a random archer just goes, Whoa, whoops, <laughs> and the arrow goes into his fleeing backside, in between the little place between where the armor meets together, just a little place, and the arrow goes right in, and he dies. A little sling, a big giant, a little rock. Oh, come on. That's going to find its way all the way into the forehead. It says, and it sank into Goliath's head. Why? Because 
David's really good with the slingshot? <laughs> I don't think so. I think God always gets his man. So he says, whether it's an arrow or whether it's a rock in your sling or whether it's the angel of the Lord while you go to sleep, when the, all of Israel, he tells, go to bed. I'll take care of this nasty general who comes down with 135,000 troops. They go to sleep and they wake up in the morning and there are dead bodies everywhere. God doesn't need an arrow or a stone, but he uses this woman. And it's like a rolling pin. It's just this ordinary woman when he realizes Dear Baal, instead of dear God, dear Baal, how am I going to, this is going to be written in the books. A woman with a rolling pin throws it down and, and destroys me, a warrior, a king. He says to his armor bearer, run me through, lest they write down. Oh, and you guess who killed him? A woman with a kitchen implement. So he does, puts the, the, the sword straight through him, pathetic to his last breath. When people see the devil, they're going to say, in surprise, that's the guy? That's the being that, that deceived the entire world? Are you kidding me? Pathetic to the end. Anybody like him? That's what the Bible says. In verse 55, it just kind of sums it up. I love it. It's like the last little words, the two verses, 56 and 57. Uh, it was God who takes Abimelech and Shechem down. Uh, Jotham's curse is fulfilled in a very literal way, and God is glorified. And so, you know, here, what are the reflections to this very long and dark chapter? I got a couple Ideas. Number one, I am inspired to finish well, to leave a legacy, because Gideon, by his missteps at the end, set this whole thing up. He's the one who named him. He's the one who had to have 70 sons to show everybody, oh, look at me, I'm a king. He's the father with the gun case who leaves it unlocked and the key sitting there and the door open and for the kid to wander in, he doesn't, he's not totally responsible, but he set them up by the way he neglected his walk with the Lord. He made it nice and dry and all the leaves ready for just one, one match to fall. And it's like, I want to make it wet. I want to make it hard to light a fire of rebellion. When I'm gone, I want anybody following behind me to be stumbled in wickedness so that they stumbled against being wicked, so that they, they follow the Lord. It doesn't matter if you're at your end of your life or not. People are affected by who you are and how you live. And when you're gone, whether that means you've died or whether you're just out of their life, People are either going to be emboldened to sin like you did or they're going to be inspired to walk with God and deny themselves, pick up their cross and follow because of you and your actions. You'll either make it easier for somebody to follow the Lord or you'll make it easier for them to fall. Gideon made it easy for this nightmare to happen. Number two, let's remember the fruit of selfish ambition. That when we're being self-centered, nothing good is going to come from it. Instead, everything evil. Now, I close with this thought. Interestingly, in John 19, 2, they take the real king, who is about to be crucified. They put a mock purple robe and a Read in his hand, and then they take the thorn bush. They go to the thorn bush, and they take branches of the thorn, and they make a crown, and they jam that thing into the skull of the sin bearer. He pays for the sin of the Abimelech in every fallen heart. Because all of us are guilty of Abimelech's biggest sin, 
usurping the authority of God and reigning instead of the Lord who made us. We call the shots and we reign, and we've all done that at one time in our lives. And so the thorn, the curse, goes on Jesus, the sin bearer. He pays for the sins. That's the good news, but there's better news. By Jesus' cross, death, and resurrection, he gives you power over the Abimelech that's still inside you. There's not a soul in this room who hasn't acted in a self-centered way in the last week. Abimelech has had his way in our own hearts and lives. And the more I read this chapter, the more I saw a hatred for the Abimelech in me. And the joy and gratitude to God that I've been born again and I have the power of the Holy Spirit to put that beast in check. When he wants preeminence and glory and to have his own way, to be impatiently intolerant with anybody who disagrees, kill him. He disagrees with me. That's how we are. But we have a, a divine nature imparted to us to deal with that beast. If, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we put to death the misdeeds of, let's just call the sinful nature Abimelech, then you will live. Let me read this, this scripture. I'm substituting sinful nature for Abimelech, all right? So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the Abimelech within you. For the Abimelech nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit and the spirit what is contrary to your king Abimelech. The acts of Abimelech are obvious. I'm quoting from Galatians chapter 5. Sexual immorality, impurity, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, ambition, selfish ambition, dissension, envy, drunkenness, and alike. I warn you as I did before, Paul says, that those who live like Abimelech will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the Abimelech within with his passions and desires for self-rule. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we don't look at Abimelech by pointing fingers and raising our noses like we don't get him because we really do get him. And even to hate our brothers, you say we're akin to murderers, and when we call them fools, it's, it's, it's like murdering. And to lust in our hearts is to say, there's no God, I can do whatever I please. And God, we just want to be inspired by this depressing chapter <laughs> to walk with you and to let your um, spirit reign in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.